Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Whether we like it or not, and awful as it is, we are in a war. We are in a war not against a normal enemy, a physical enemy, another nation, but in a war against the virus, COVID-19. The only good thing that comes out of war is a lot of innovation. And we're going to see innovation out of this war. So today I have asked two of the most gifted people I know to come on the broadcast and discuss innovation with us. One in artificial intelligence and physical things, and one in therapeutics. They are Linda Marban, Chief Executive Officer of Capricor Therapeutics, a clinical stage biotechnology company based in Los Angeles. And Andres Carvalho, he is Chief Executive Officer of CMG Consulting. His company focuses on enabling smart grids, smart utilities, smart cities, and smart buildings. He has been called the smart grid godfather. They are gifted people. I've worked with both of them, and it is my pleasure and honor to have them on this broadcast today. Welcome both. Starting with you, Andre, what is happening? What is coming out of the current time that is going to change things, make an indelible mark, and help us moving forward? Oh, Llewellyn, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you and Linda here today. Um, Another beautiful day in Texas. Uh, Well, you know, uh, COVID-19 is clearly being um, an incredible challenge and somewhat of a devastation for many people. Uh, But yet, like any um, transformation or nature event of such a magnitude, there is all kinds of uh, accelerations in uh, the human uh, spirit uh, tends to be resilient about innovating and doing things differently. And so we see COVID as an agent of acceleration um, for digitalization of, you know, human life, uh, work, play, uh, and how we do things. And so the number of um, companies innovating and accelerating how we transform, how we do things sort of in the old paradigm, before COVID and what's happening with all kinds of new technologies. It's just amazing. Uh, We have been tracking this since uh, March and the number of companies and the number, the amount of innovation is just tremendous, tremendous. Linda, you have said in an article, I quoted you actually, um, that you hope that this will lead to a greater speed of certifying medicines, getting them through the Food and Drug Administration, a notorious choke point for innovation in medicine. How is that coming and what are your what is your prognosis? Yeah, so thank you, Llewellyn. And I spent a lot of time thinking about um, what we were going to be discussing today. It's such an issue of such great gravity for our world. And you said in our, your opening remarks something that really gave me pause and, and I will carry with me, which is that this is a war. 
and in times of war, great innovation happens. And I think that's exactly um, what has happened here. You know, we can be staggered by the thought that in February, and I actually know this firsthand because uh, my previous meeting was with somebody who was sitting um, in the boardroom at Moderna when they decided to work on the vaccine. And in February was when they first started working on building that phase one clinical trial. Today in December, um, not even one full calendar year later, we are anticipating approval of a vaccine that seems very effective in treating or preventing, not treating, preventing COVID-19. This is absolutely astounding. One year ago today, if we had had this opportunity to talk on some of these similar subjects, I would tell you that it would probably take about five years to see a vaccine developed. And this has taken that down and taken it to if you sort of do the math, to 20% of the prepared time. Now, one might ask oneself, why? Why is that the case? Um, and it's because we have this pandemic and because we have the war, the fundamentals of disease haven't changed. The fundamental of needing to get therapeutics to dying people have not changed. But what has changed is our thinking, hopefully globally, that we can move this much more quickly when we put resources, time, and ingenuity all together. Before I go back to Andres, then to tell us quickly about Capricor and your role. So I'm the CEO of Capricor Therapeutics. I've been running the company for a little more than 10 years. Um, we've recently rebranded the company uh, to develop exosome-based therapeutics for rare diseases using um, RNA as the delivery platform. So we'll be using the exosomes to deliver RNAs. Our first products that we're powering forward are actually second-generation vaccines for COVID um, based on the same mRNA platform as Moderna and Pfizer, but using a multi-antigen approach. So we're using four of the major structures. Now, I'm very interested in where AI, Andres, fits in with uh, medicine. Well, um, you know, again, uh, COVID has accelerated um, the adoption of technology probably uh, about 10 years. And artificial intelligence and machine learning is one of those that was out of the gate uh, uh, officially in a massive way probably three years ago. But clearly there was a lot of, um, you know, hesitation about the technology, a lot of doubters, a lot of uh, naysayers about where this would go and how difficult it would be to live in a world, you know, controlled by machines and, 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 and so on. But I think that in certain segments of, of markets uh, and in industries, for example, drug development and the like, uh, clearly AI and ML are, are playing a significant role on how we accelerate, uh, you know, uh, simulations and, and, and testing and trial and, and we study and learn faster what's going on with results and, and the significant amount of data that can be collected from all that process. So clearly, um, you know, everything going forward as we move into digitalization of our world uh, is going to be driven is going to be improved, is going to be optimized in some way or another for as simple of a process, as simple of a vertical, to as complicated as space and, and, and conquering uh, Mars and whatever. It's all going to be driven by AI and machine learning. Andres, tell me a little about yourself and CMG. Uh, <laughs> don't like to talk about myself much, but uh, uh, I'm an engineer. 
Uh, I, uh, when, uh, uh, after studying robotics and control systems, went to work for Microsoft and was the first product manager for Windows and um, worked in the software industry for about eight years. Uh, in addition to Microsoft, Mike uh, Borland and Santa Cruz Operation, then I went to the East Coast uh, and worked for Digital Equipment Corporation, now part of Hewlett Packard Enterprise, and built a personal computer business for them, a multi-billion dollar thing, and then went to work for Philips Electronics making cell phones in the 90s, built a $3 billion company making cell phones. Then I decided to do startups, who wouldn't, in the late 90s, uh, did four startups, sold them all. Then I decided to move to Austin and join the power company as chief information technology officer, build the first bar grid in the world, deploy $4 billion worth of technology in, in 10 years, and um, learn a lot there uh, more than anywhere else. Uh, did two more startups after that in IoT and uh, started CMG. CMG is a consulting firm that focuses on smart cities, smart grids, smart energy, smart utilities, smart buildings. Uh, we have been in business for seven years, have designed and built the plans for many things, including AT&T's IoT strategy and many things like that. And we've helped many cities and utilities transform. So tr digital transformation is what we drive. And Thank we you. And we focused on digitalization, uh, decarbonization, and uh, decentralization. And you are a professor of innovation at Texas State University. I, I, I teach a class on telecom and a class on smart energy. And, uh, and then I run a research park where I have 600 P, uh, peers of mine, PhDs, uh, building a uh, sort of the future of industry. Uh, we are building nine living labs and we have, you know, a few hundred projects going on, have a hundred members from industry uh, in a right. smart city scenario, hundred acres, uh, right. doing all kinds of cool things. Very interesting. Uh, Linda, does the word exaptation mean anything to you? Exaptation, no. Uh, well, it's a word that's been derived from biology, which you know something about, uh, but it, it's really, it comes from natural science. And the classic explanation of it is the wings on birds, which nature put there to keep them warm. Then they found they work very well if you try to fly. Uh, and it's a word that's growing use of, particularly with pharmaceuticals, or at least people who are interested in this science, of using what has been discovered somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think artificial intelligence comes in. There may be, I don't know, a million patents in medicine, a million compounds that have been developed for this or that, and yet they, they, they're developed for a specific disease or they fail with a specific disease, but they may be quite useful somewhere else if somebody could find them. And I think that's where Andres and his artificial intelligence comes in. Uh, do you see a lot of looking into what has already been invented, the good ideas that are out there? 
Yeah, so this is an entire field, um, actually, of, of compounds that are repurposed. I think the shelves of the pharmaceutical companies are literally filled with drugs that have failed in development for a variety of reasons, uh, many of them not very good to, to keep them from people. Um, and so there's a lot of work being done specifically um, to retest these disease, these compounds in different diseases, but AI is very important. So even back in ancient times when I was a graduate student, and um, there was a lot of modeling that would go on of disease and sort of where we can target things in and now we can sort of imply those compounds in. So I think artificial intelligence will ultimately drive a lot of the discoveries that are made and repurposing uh, pharmaceuticals as you discussed. Do you think artificial intelligence can speed up the FDA approach? If something has been tested, a lot is known about it, can that speed it through the system? In your quotation, which I wrote about this week, uh, you mentioned that there are great discoveries that don't get to patients who need them because they're tied up in the bureaucratic procedure, uh, which is necessary because you don't want dangerous drugs on the market. And we can always look to thalidomide, other times where drugs have gone really wrong. And yet, if we've already tested them, if we already know the side effects, can we speed them up by finding them with artificial intelligence? You know, it's going to be very interesting to see if there's changes that are mandated at FDA um, for the future. Um, right now, I'm not seeing any inclination as such. Um, I agree with you. I can't agree more that we need um, a federally mandated um, approach to preventing not only thalidomide, of course, which is drastic and terrible, but also snake oil, right? Um, so we, we absolutely need this kind of a body. But I don't think that they are keeping pace with technology or with opportunity. Um, FDA is very narrow-minded, at least my experience has seen um, this to be true, as have many of my colleagues, where they look at a very, very narrow slice of data for a very, very narrow indication to decide whether or not it would be efficacious for that specific indication. And even if it's one tick to the left of not effective with a statistically significant p-value, we call it, um, it's sort of a kick to the curb uh, for, for somebody else to come back and redo a lot of the clinical trials. So I do think that you know, we need to declare a war on disease in general and rethink our approach to the prevention of snake oil, the prevention of thalidomide, but also finding a sweet spot where we can really move much more quickly to making therapeutics, vaccines, and other opportunities available to those that are critically in need. Andres, accepting uh, the fact that snake oil that comes out of Austin is probably superior and efficacious, uh, <laughs> Uh, how do you see, knowing your, with your knowledge of artificial intelligence, how do you see it operating in the, in the biosphere? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, the machine learning and AI, it's all about uh, going through a, a significant large number of data samples. So um, the more data that you have, uh, the more significant and impactful the use of AI and ML would be. So if your early data sets and data trials are too narrow, too small, you're not going to have an impact. So you really need, you know, global scale deployment of trials for AI and ML to sort of accelerate and 
and leapfrog decision making based on you know the, the the analysis of predictive analytics and and prescriptive analytics and all that. So so I think what's probably going to happen is the the FDA and the local you know the UK and all these countries that tend to work standalone are going to realize that they need to more work more at the global level and do trials in collaboration and use AIML to really sample a much larger set of data to sort of cut through, you know, leapfrog through decision making just based on, on larger data sets that provide enough, uh, you know, uh, you know, sort of needles in the haystack to find the right answers. And so the sample side is a, is a limiting factor, hence wanting to be more global in, in healthcare probably is the right way to go. You use, um, uh, uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence almost in the same sentence, yet I'm told they are not the same thing and one should They're not. differentiate. They're not. Can you give yeah, us machine... a quick layman's explanation? Yeah, machine learning is just a set of sophisticated algorithms that uh, you know a data scientist creates to solve uh, or to try to solve the problem at hand. So depending, again, in in, in in, in statistics and analytics, you're looking for the needle in the haystack, and you don't know exactly where the needle is. You know kind of what it looks like, but you don't know exactly where it is and where it could be hiding. So, so machine learning is driven by a, a set of human beings uh, trying to find that needle in the haystack. Artificial intelligence, which are there are very few products there out there. Out there actually have the ability for the computer itself or the programs itself learn from the original set of algorithms and sort of evolve on their own and take over. And so that's where that's part of the challenge with AI. We are seeing it first probably at a global scale with um, you know connected vehicles, autonomous vehicles, where the the vehicles learning as it's driving all the time, and that's sort of one of the building blocks of AI. Thank you, Linda. Uh, what is meant by precision medicine, and are we going to see more of it? <laughs> So precision medicine is sort of antithetical to what Andreas was just discussing, which was the aggregation of large data sets and sort of pulling um, sort of patterns out of that to define treatment paradigms is what I'm guessing. Precision medicine is sort of um, the opposite of that, which is to very finely tune what uh, you are going to be treating um, with uh, compounds or with a disease state. And so it requires actually understanding individual variations or small group variations that allow targeted therapeutics. Now, this is really exciting because it should lead to the development of technologies with less side effects, um, less impacts on, for instance, different ethnic groups. We would actually understand which which way it works. And so it requires ideally to be able to, you know, in the fullness of time, take Andreas's concept of building huge databases with a lot of information and pulling that out and then being able to actually target it like you would, you know, target a bomb, for instance, got, you know, using a terrible example, but something of that nature where you can specifically say, I want it at this point um, geographically from very far away. I understand that uh, precision medicine can go all the way back to looking at your DNA. Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, that it really involves a totality of diagnosis, looking at the whole body and all the systems in it and its origins. I don't see that as being antithetical to what Andres is saying. I, I, I can speak to that, Llewellyn. So there are a couple of companies that we're working with. So if you've heard of 3D printing, you sure. have, right? No, additive so, manufacturing. So, yes. so think, think about the concept of 3D printing applied to you, the food that you eat. So instead of going to a supermarket to get food from the shelf that is designed for generic consumption, not optimized for your DNA, now think about sending that DNA recipe to the to the store and picking up, you know, on the curve your cereal, your salad, your you know staples that you buy, all designed for you based on your DNA. Well, that's interesting because different people react differently to foodstuffs. Mm -hmm. um, a health organization, I was knew something about in California at one point, advocated uh, uh, vegetarianism. And then two years later, they abandoned it because they found people who were uh, mostly from the northern part of Europe did not do well as vegetarians, whereas those closer to the Mediterranean. In Africa, I know that there are there are people who live on milk, like the Maasai, but most Africans have very low lactose tolerance and can't take much milk, and often when there's a famine, we wrong food, which yeah. makes them sick. All of that we could discover with a few keystrokes, presumably, if we are mining the data correctly. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and what Linda is saying in the end is what's important, right? This trend is captured by the word mass customization. This trend was, created, was first brought to us by Alvin Toffler when he wrote <laughs> The Third Wave in the 70s. And he started talking about this concept of mass scale production, but then customized to one single market type. While we were on this, Linda, how big a problem in research is siloing? Uh, you mentioned that precision uh, medicine is a kind of siloing, uh, but how big a problem is it in research of researchers not sharing their information? I think I've seen it in the uh, reporting I've done on chronic fatigue syndrome, where I see uh, researchers at different parts of the problem without knowing what each other are doing. I think that's really changing. They've now, you know, tried to expand the opportunities by having these, you know, online servers where you can post work very quickly and, um, you know, prior to a, an arduous peer review process. And there's a variety of other ways that you can very quickly with very rapid peer review get information out there. Um, I think people and researchers in general are not uh, adverse or um, concerned with sharing their information. I think I think it's more in the translation of that into therapeutics that the issue becomes more uh, draconian and siloed. So we have more of a situation where um, in drug development, you know, I call them fiefdoms. Everybody's sort of trying to build their own castle at the top of the hill. And that's where really the information flow starts to um, be attenuated. There's also issues of uh, uh, intellectual property. Who's going to own the invention? Right. Or who's going to make the money? And that inhibits free flow of information. Sure. 
Well, I think, um, you know, it's it's very interesting to say that um, when Andreas was talking about startups in the 90s, you know, I think scientists also sort of jumped onto that bandwagon. And I used to joke that, you know, every named professor uh, also, you know, when he collected his chair, he collected his, you know, how to build a startup book uh, because everybody thinks their idea becomes a company. Ultimately, we want the sharing of those ideas because that's where, you know, intellectual property merges with the concept of building therapeutics or diagnostics or whatever it is that you're doing. And so we have to find a way to remunerate those that do the hard work, um, but yet allow for sort of the broader development of a therapy. Same question, more or less, Andres. Uh, what, do you, what sort of problem do you see with silos in your work? Yeah, well, silos come from from the fact that we are, again, moving from an analog world where everything is sort of limited, uh, information and processes are serial-based, and now we're moving to a digital world where there is no hierarchy and and everything is important at the same time and and the speed at which you can collect the data to make the decisions multiplies by factors, orders of magnitude, no one order or 10 or 20, but hundreds of orders of magnitude. So so hence humans can no longer uh, be the decision makers of everything. They need to be the designers of the world, but they cannot be the execution operators of the world that they design. We need to rely on, you know, infrastructure and devices and hence machines that can actually, you know, move at that speed. And and the answer is simple. I mean, is our brain the most powerful computer ever built yet? Absolutely. Is it an organic thing? Yes. Do we know how it really works? Not really. Does it cast petabytes of data storage for information? Yes. Do we record everything we see every day? Yes. However, we can't, I cannot tell you what the answer of 350,000 times 42,052 is, or nor can I recall everything that I have filmed in my lifetime. So the challenge is, we're, we still are the most sophisticated machine for creating things, but we're definitely very inefficient when it comes to running things in a very you know, repetitive nature with perfection of no mistakes and things like that. So we need to shift to machines. Do you yourself see a role uh, with your knowledge of artificial intelligence and data? How do you see its role in medicine? Yeah, I think I think the biggest the biggest challenge is not going to be how you know analytics, machine learning, and AI help finding results and cures. I think that the challenge is going to be more of um, policy, more of moral values, more of doing the right thing. Because think about this, for example, the machine learning uh, system that manages a car will need to be designed to solve the following problem. You are in an accident scenario. There is no way out. And the car needs to choose between running over a cat or killing the lady crossing the street. What would the machine learning decide? Somebody has to program that. If it's my cat, I hope it's the lady. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Linda. Linda, Andres, 
Linda gets the last word. I'm sure that'll break your heart, but I'll try to make it up to you in some way. Thank you both so much for coming on the program. Two people at the cutting edge of invention, improving the human space. That's our show for today. Thank you for coming along. Time to take our clothes off and put on our masks. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we are there.